Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 51. As we jump right back to where we were, look at chapter 50 briefly as we dive into 51, but I will be reading 51. I would remind you, I mentioned this in Sunday school today, because we believe in the divine author, we know that God wrote this. And our God is outside of time and space. That's wonderful to think of. I, mean, I exist, you exist, we exist inside time and space, which means we live in a world of cause and effect where there are things that have happened and things that have not yet happened. God is outside of time. All things are before him and happening with him and to him. I, I can't even explain it. But the joy of that is that when he wrote Isaiah 51, he wrote it with all of reality in mind, including even this morning. So we can comfortably say, this is God's word written for you today, specifically Isaiah 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and might multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out for me, and I will set my justice for light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me. You who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, my salvation to all generations. Awake! Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall come to Zion with singing, Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you're afraid of man who dies? 
the Son of Man who's made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you're my people. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup staggering. There's none to guide her among all the sons she's born. There's none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who's going to console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They're full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this. You who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give life and light to our minds and our hearts. As your word is perfect, we're not. And so we ask for your help, for Christ's sake. Amen. I don't think it can be underestimated the terribleness of some gifts that on the surface look wonderful, right? If you uh, grew up in a school or a time in which you got to interact with the story of King Midas at all, right? You remember the story of the Midas touch? King Midas loved his money. He uh, really kind of in some sense worshiped it until he was given the, uh, the, the great blessing that everything he touched would turn to gold, which sounds great until you go touch your kids or your wife or your dog, and they turn to gold and cease to be the things that you love them to be. So many things in life that seem like blessings are great challenges, I, I know, and one of those, I think one of the ones that so often adults tend to long for, is some sense of knowing the future. Right? We just love to know the future. We would love to know the future for our investments. We'd love to know the future for our jobs. We'd love to know the future for our decision-making. But honestly, in, in great truth, that's really just short-sighted. Because most of us, if we really are going to admit it, are cowards. And the only way that we're actually able to live the difficulties of our lives is that we didn't know that we were stepping into them. 
Right? Most of the hardest things that we've done and the, the, the difficult things that we've made it through, the only way we made it was because we didn't know what we were walking into. If we had known, if we had been aware, we would have run. We wouldn't have made it. So many of our victories, so many of the actually great benefits of suffering, we'd flee from. The problem becomes what happens when you actually do know the future and it's difficult. What happens when you do get uh, that bit of information that will change everything about your life going forward and you have to figure out how to respond? That's really kind of where we are in this part of the book of Isaiah. And really there's two sections to the book, the bad news of which there is a lot and the good news of which there is some at the end. We're approaching that kind of major turning point where we've been dealing with bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. I know that's probably felt the way the sermons have been. Got the joke. And we begin to approach the turning point. In fact, actually, Isaiah 50, which um, really kind of where we've ended is that major kind of those major themes addressed. Israel has not walked with God. They've sinned. They've turned their hearts away from the Lord. And as a result, the Lord has poured out his judgment upon them. They've had great difficulty. In fact, actually, through the ministry of Isaiah, you see that the northern kingdom is invaded and eventually the southern kingdom as well. And the nation of Israel disappears from off the map. And when uh, you think of disappearing off the map, their warfare was not clean and tidy and nice the way that ours is today. Warts is terrible today. I mean, it's awful today. Don't, don't hear me say that it's good. <laughs> the way it was back then was just dreadful, though, because there was no such thing as a civilian. Right? There no, no civilians at all. In fact, everybody was fair game. And that's how you broke the spirit of your enemy. You killed the soldiers and then took all their wives and children and made them their own. If the boys were old enough to remember um, that they belonged to a different nation, you killed all them and kept everybody young. Uh, Women were of particular value as they could be traded and transported, and it was awful. In fact, actually, so much of this invasion as it's been described largely centers around those ideas of starvation. With it being described as so just grippingly terrible that parents would eat their children because they're starving to death. Horrible things. Absolutely dreadful. And the challenge becomes, what do you do when the book has been prophesying, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And the whole point of Isaiah's ministry has been to say, so repent. You can still stop it. You can change the future. All you have to do, Israel, is repent. But they don't. And they won't. And so we arrive at a a chapter like 51. It's not the only one that deals with these kinds of themes. But what do God's people do in the midst of a nation that's about to be punished and destroyed for disobedience? Now, this is dealing with the true believer. This isn't dealing with the generic Jew that calls upon the name of the Lord but doesn't know him, doesn't worship him, or doesn't obey him. This is dealing with the true believer. What does the true believer do when they get bad news? 
Well, there's a whole bunch of kind of things that work in the chapter kind of sequentially. But it's interesting, it starts really with a battle for the mind. What do we do as a Christian when we get the bad news, when the the future looks bleak and the future looks grim? What do we do? Well, we go to the promises of God. He starts here with two great realities, verses 1 through 3 and then 4 through 6. Israel, what, is it, what does it mean that we're about to be invaded? What does it mean that we're about to be kind of wiped off the map? What does it mean that we're going to starve to death and it's going to be terrible? What, what does it mean? Well, how do I respond as I begin to think God's thoughts after him? I contemplate his promises. Look at the verses 1 through 3. It's an amazing kind of follow-up to a nation that's being destroyed. Listen to me, this is going to be a reoccurring word that's going to show up, listen, awake, kind of those get your ears perked up kind of verbs. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you people of God, those who are actively walking with the Lord, listen. Your job in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of this grim and dark future is to look back to the Lord who loves you. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. Where'd you come from? Well, you came from Abraham and Sarah. That's the father of all the Jews. Why would it be so significant to, to look back to Abraham and Sarah? Well, because those are the people of God that God has promised himself to, that he's pledged himself to, that the biblical term is covenanted himself to. Uh, this is the greatest of promises, the most deep and serious and it's well, well, well beyond the cross your heart and hope to die severity of promise. God himself has promised to take care of his people. In fact, actually, he's promised so much that verse 3 really shows what his heart is for creation. The Lord comforts Zion and in fact actually is in the business of making the desert and wild places like Eden again. He's he's in the business of taking the bits that are broken, destroyed, wild, and hopeless, and restoring them to be back like the garden of hope. I don't think we probably properly appreciate what the garden of Eden was like. I mean, if you, you really think about it, There's no sin. At this point, there's no weeds. We know at this point there's no animosity between the animals and humans. That happens after the flood. So it's this like spectacularly idyllic place where the weather is so comfortable that God makes them naked and they're like, cool with that. And there's fruit everywhere. Everything is in season and in harvest and it's beautiful. Not just beautiful and like lovely, but like it's arranged correctly. All the trees are in the right places so that God can then say, hey, your job is to take the beauty of these trees and arrange them over the entirety of the planet. Take this garden and expand it over all that is wild. It's wild to think that his starting point for considering the things, the the bad news and the dark things of our life 
God's starting point is, if you'll look at me, you'll remember that I'm undoing all of the bad. That's a wild starting point if you think about it. That God is, in essence, telling his people in the midst of, hey, you're getting ready to starve to death and some of you are going to try to eat your kids because you're going to be so hungry. Remember, I'm in the business of undoing the bad. We're going to, for those old enough to remember VCR, right, we're going to rewind it all the way to the beginning of the tape. It's going to be undone, all of the the damage and the destruction, the things that you're going to carry with you, the scars, the things that you don't like, the things that you're afraid of, that you know are out to get you and damage you. I'm undoing all of that. I'm fixing creation. All right, so you have that one kind of promise there in verses one through three that to look to the Lord to remember he's restoring creation and Four through six, he then says, look to the Lord again. This time, not rewinding, but fast-forwarding. The VCR is back. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out, future tense, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation is gone. All the nations are going to be saved, and it's going to be this wonderful, eternal salvation. Right, you get that, verse 6, look, your eyes to the heavens, look at the earth beneath, the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, all of this creation is going to pass away, but my salvation will be forever. So you really have this wonderful kind of timeline presented to the people of God as they're contemplating the difficulties of the future. He says, remember, when you think about the things that make you afraid and when you think about the things that make you hurt and when you think about the future that is unknown or perhaps worse yet, known and it's bad, remember that I am the God that loves you and I am in the business of rewinding and I am in the business of fast-forwarding. In the business of rewinding in such a way that the hurts and heartaches that you've experienced will not define you. I will make creation as if it has never been broken. And he's in the business of fast-forwarding, of knowing that he'll take us into a future that cannot be altered, that cannot be destroyed. I love that. This is good, good pastoral counsel given by God. (laughs) That as the people of God really struggle in their minds with what to think about the future and think about the present. He, he takes them and kind of shakes them awake and says, think about the past and think about the future. Don't just get stuck in the present. And that's really a human thing, isn't it? To let our problems grow so big as to cloud the entirety of how we think today. To let that problematic coworker that family member that's driving you crazy, basically consume the entirety of your world. Maybe you've not been in that moment for a while, but if you have, you know what it feels like, don't you? Where every thought somehow connects to this new and awful thing that's directly in front of us. 
This problem that is here is so great and grand that it, it, it consumes everything. It's like an eclipse that blocks out the entirety of the sun and suddenly everything is touched by the darkness of whatever this problem is. And I love that it's like, if you remember those years ago when the eclipse came here, it would be very easy, you could think how scary it would be if you didn't know the sun was coming back to like really panic. And you could imagine a parent dealing with a young child and saying, look, remember, the sun was here and the sun will be here. The sun's been here at this time every day for the entirety of your life and it will be here this time of day every day for the rest of your life is just in this moment that it's dark. I love that. The Lord's anchoring it in his character and then kind of placing it on the timeline to say, people of God, yes, you're scared. Yes, you're discouraged. Yes, you, you battle with hopelessness. Yes, you're going to battle with depression. Yes, the future will scare you. Yes, the present will terrify you at times. But you can look at the past. And God's working back that way. And look at the future, and God's working back that way. And he's taking care of you. That's why he then turns the corner in verses 7 and 8 and really shifts into application. This is directed application. This is God's application to his people who are struggling. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. This is, again, specifying this is for Christians, those that know the Lord. Listen to me, you who know the Lord, the people in whose heart is my law. Again, those who are Christians. Fear not the reproach of man nor be dismayed at their revilings because they're going to pass away. They're going to disappear. I love that he then kind of gives you that, your, your application. Like a good preacher gives you a good takeaway. What's my takeaway? Well, God's saying like, look, the midst of this situation, it seems so grim. It seems so hopeless. The darkness has consumed my light and the Lord is like, hey, don't be afraid, please. You don't have to be afraid of people. They're going to pass away. You don't have to be afraid of circumstances. They're going to pass away. In fact, we're going to get to the later part of the chapter. You don't even have to be afraid of creation. It's going to pass away. There's only one thing that doesn't pass away in some fashion, and that's the Lord himself. And he's already told us that he loves us. He already told us that he cares for us. He's already told us that he's taking care of us. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the people around us. Now, this is one of those commands that I really love. Because it's the command that every parent tries to teach their young children. Like, oh, you don't have to be afraid of people, honey. You you don't have to be afraid of, you know. But then secretly does it in their heart all of the time. It's one of those, like, great moments in parental hypocrisy by accident where we sit down with our children and we say, we want you to be confident and we want you to be respectful, but we don't want you to to fall prey to peer pressure. When your friends tell you to do bad things, you don't have to do them, honey. Well, even if they want you to, you don't have to listen to them, right? I mean, how many parents have you said, you've said this, right? You sit your kids down and you teach them this all of the time. But then when we go to work, 
where we deal with our neighbors, where we engage social media, we have that quiet voice in the back of our head that says something to the effect of, yeah, but what will they think? But what will they think about me? I mean, will they, will they like me? Will they, will they think I'm stupid? Will they think I'm dumb? Will they think I'm incompetent? Will they think I'm ugly? Will they, will they reject me? Maybe they might reject me. And I love this, it's kind of the tension that you get to see where it's like we're, we're trying to get our children to see past that fear of man that can so easily dominate a person's mind. And yet as adults, we just have a much more sophisticated, devious and pernicious version of it. That's what he goes after. Really, how do, we, how do we combat this kind of great darkness that can descend over our minds? Well, it's to fight the fear. Now, notice it's interesting. He doesn't actually address the fact that he's not taking the darkness away yet. He's combating the fear. If you haven't read uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you should read it every year, not just once. It's um, easily, I think, probably the best non-inspired book ever written. Um, Bunyan was imprisoned, actually, because he refused to stop preaching the gospel and decided that while he was in prison, he'd write an allegory kind of of the Christian experience. And, and it's got some challenges to it because of uh, some quirks in Bunyan's theology and his revivalism and such. But Bunyan had some brilliant kind of pastoral pictures that described the human experience. Uh, my favorite is where Pilgrim, Christian, the lead character uh, in his journey ends up having to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Right, a terrible place to have to be. And as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, even in the midst of this valley, he has a ditch on one side, he's got a, uh, another terror on the other side, and he's having to walk this tiny little path uh, that seems like there's just, it's impossible. And as he's walking this tiny little path through the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, he has demons and monsters that begin to not attack him directly, but through covert and subtle methods. And, and Bunyan actually gets to the point, and you, you get the impression the way he writes it that he's actually describing his own personal experience, where he says, the voice of the devil became so real he could no longer discern it from his own. Right, the whisperings in his, his head of the fears, the whisperings of darkness, the whisperings of the devil himself were so real, Pilgrim thought they were his own thoughts. And sometimes, hopefully you're not experiencing that right now, but you might. And I love the fact that the design that God has is not to spare us the journey through the valley, but to promise us you don't stay there. You know because there was something before the valley and you know because there's something after the valley. Because really, friends, if you actually think about it kind of geographically, a valley that doesn't have a beginning and an end is actually a pit, right? I mean, you have to be able to get in the valley, you have to be able to get out of the valley, otherwise it's just a pit. It's not a pit, he's leading us in, he's leading us out. And doing something with it. So the command in the midst of this great kind of darkness and difficulty is don't be afraid. The Lord is with you. Now, as anybody who's had to deal with people who are afraid, just simply telling them to stop being afraid doesn't really work, does it? 
If you've ever, you know, decided that terrible mistake over the Halloween season to go to some sort of haunted house or go with younger children than perhaps should be there and, you know, they get scared, you can't just look at them and be like, stop being afraid. Great. It works, doesn't it? They're immediately, the fear is gone. They're, they're right and happy, aren't they? And no, it never works. And interestingly, I think the Lord kind of acknowledges that and then kind of really begins to display his knowledge of human nature. He should know it. He made it. And begins really kind of pushing the conversation further. And you see here a reoccurring set of verbs. Awake. Awake. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. And it's really, he's kind of presented to his people this command. You don't need to be afraid, but you do got to wake up. Because what's going to happen is you're going to want to fall asleep. And as you fall asleep, that's when the fears creep in. And they take over your mind and take over your heart. Obviously, the sleep here is not a physical sleep, but much more kind of like that Wizard of Oz field of poppies sleep, the being lulled into wrong thinking. Instead, the Lord challenges us to wake up, and it's not just to wake up to nothing, but to wake up to his truth. Look at verses 9 through 16 is the first kind of paragraph of wake up, right? He got you by the collar, kind of trying to shake you awake when you're all groggy and distracted. 9 through 16, he, he says, wake up, and then kind of drops two massive truths on the people of God right away to kind of help shock your brain back into being awake. Verses 9 through 11 lay out that uh, the Lord has displayed his mighty arm in the past and the present. And then verses 12 through 16 display his great power in doing so. All right, 9 through 11, he goes back and he takes them into the Exodus. All right, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? That's not actually Rahab in the line of Jesus. That's, um, Rahab was a term that was used for the great enemies of the past. Uh, so generic enemy. Uh, was it not you that destroyed God who destroyed uh, their enemies in the past, who pierced the dragon? Again, dragon illustration of the enemies. Um, was it not you who dried up the, red, the, the sea, right? So the Red Sea here, the waters of the deep made the depths of the sea in a way for the redeemed to pass over. So God's people were led out of slavery, crossed over on dry ground. And the ransom of the Lord shall return to come home to Zion with singing. So he, he's not just wasting his power, but he was displaying it in the past and now he's doing it again in the present to take care of you to watch over you and to love you, to provide for you. 12 through 16, he then explains his mighty power in case you doubted it. Wake up! God is so powerful, he is able to take care of you. Who are you, verse 12, that you're afraid of man, afraid of people who die like grass, who pass away, whose lives cannot be preserved past 120 years. Instead, I am the God who laid out the foundations of the earth, who stretched out the heavens. I am the God who has destroyed your enemies, has destroyed mine. I am the God who is providing. And I like that, again, the way this is written by Isaiah is it's acknowledging 
If you, if you think about kind of the logical flow that's working in the passage, he started with kind of two great realities that God is working into the past, he's working into the future, you know, he, he's, he's this kind of remaking God. And as a result of that, we don't need to be afraid of men, we don't need to be afraid of anything inside of creation. The Lord himself is the only thing we need to be afraid of. But that doesn't mean our fears just immediately evaporate. And so the rest of the chapter is just displaying that so much of fear is a battle for the mind. Right? It's a battle for the mind, and so what you have here is a, a conversation in which God is saying to his people, you've got to be reminded. You, you have to think. Shock your brain back into being awake that I am the mighty God who has power and strength and honor and glory and might, and I am using all of that for your good. And if you don't believe me, go look at the past as a reminder. Go look at the past. Now, this is a really, I think, a, a strong remedy because as we kind of get in the midst of pain, in the midst of fear, in the midst of discouragement, what can often set in is like a hopeless depression where it's like, well, God doesn't love me and even if he did, he's not doing anything. I'm gonna eat some worms. And it turns in this kind of pouty, like nothing's gonna help and nothing's gonna happen. And I love that he's like, no, go look at the past. Go look. You have proof of him working in creation. And interestingly, in the Old Testament, the time in which this is written, they just had to go back and look at the Exodus and hope that was enough. We have something very different, don't we? I mean, we can go back and look at the Exodus. We should. But beyond that, there's a much bigger reminder for us. Friends, you think, you doubt that God is working for your good, even in the midst of dark times, go read the Gospels again and remember the Lord Jesus. Right? His ministry, he's the very Son of God stepped inside time and space. If you were looking at it kind of from a human perspective, you would have had thought, well, maybe that was a mistake. And then not only stepping inside time and space and inside humanity, but to step inside the womb of a a poor carpenter's wife. You think, well, that was a mistake. Why didn't you choose, you know, kind of like somebody powerful or important? I mean, at least have money, resources to start with. I mean, it's not like he's going to get a great education. He's going to have to educate himself largely in the temple through learning. And then when he begins his ministry, his ministry is largely teaching a bunch of goobers, right? And they're not exactly the best and brightest. And we don't, I mean, they're not heroes until they get the Holy Spirit, really. And while he's teaching this group of goons that he calls his disciples, he's actively making enemies of all of the most powerful people on the planet, actively making enemies of really the Jews and indirectly the Romans, so that when the time was right and he chose for the situation to happen, they would send him to the cross so that the King of kings and Lord of lords would have the opportunity that he manufactured to give up his life 
Something that strategically, every single bit of it, humanly speaking, every single bit of it, every step of the way of it, we would have looked at and thought, that's a mistake, that's a mistake, that's a mistake, that's a mistake. And in fact, actually, the scriptures are so wonderful, they include one of those interchanges where Peter does that to Jesus, and he's like, "Um, this is a bad idea, Jesus. No, I'm not going to let this happen. And what does Jesus say to him? Get out of my way, Satan. You know what you're talking about. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Your perspective is too small. You have forgotten the God that has taken care of you. So that Jesus would ultimately go to the cross. He would give up his life on purpose. And in doing so, he would save people just like you and me. Take my sin on the cross. Give me his perfect righteousness. I can look back to that. And I love how this chapter is kind of acknowledging that in so many ways, it's a battle for your mind to remember that. We're we're creatures that forget so easily. So much of the Old Testament is just retelling what's already happened in the Old Testament to remind us. Here it's this, awake, awake, remember. Your God is the one who is in charge. Wake. Finally, quickly, verses 17 through 23. This is a, a sharper call. Wake, wake. Why? Well, because judgment. Judgment. Israel, you're about to experience the judgment of God at this point. Their nation's about to be invaded and be wiped off the map. You're about to experience the judgment of God, and you're going to drink that cup for a season. But that judgment is to remind you of a much bigger judgment. The judgment that comes at the end of time in which all of God's enemies are destroyed. So that no one stands in his way. No one frustrates his plans. No one gets in his way. I love that, verses 22, 22b. Behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, right? The, the cup of wrath that you drink and it makes you all wobbly. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. Instead, I'm going to put it in the hand of your tormentors. They are going to suffer, not you. Again, here's this kind of mental and emotional and spiritual reminder. Why do we not have to be afraid of, uh, of anyone? Because God's going to destroy his enemies. What's the worst they can do is insult you? What's the worst they can do? Hurt your body? What's the worst they can do is send you to the life to come early? They can't actually in the long run harm you. Jesus would apply this concept in saying, don't be afraid of those who can hurt the body. Be afraid of the one who can kill the soul. Right? Strong medicine. Awake, remember the wrath of God. What do we do with a passage like this today? Right? I mean, we're not in ancient Israel. We're, we're not probably staring down the barrel of our nation being invaded and wiped off the map, I hope. Um, if we do, we, we don't know about it, if that is going to happen. Well, I, I would say, really, our big takeaway here <clears throat> is I think fear is one of those things that is a struggle that defines 98% of the actions of your average Christian, and they refuse to acknowledge that reality. It's really funny. We, we will admit that we're greedy. We will sometimes even admit that we're a gossip. Ugh. 
Right? We, we might admit that we're jealous of people. We might be willing to admit all kinds of ugly things. But weirdly enough, this is one that so many, even adult, mature Christians will refuse to admit is that we struggle with fear. That we're afraid of our friends, that we're afraid of our neighbors, we're afraid of our coworkers, we're afraid of how they're gonna hurt us, hurt our feelings or make us feel stupid or small. And it's intriguing of how much of our lives are defined by that. I'll give you an answer, example I mean. Why don't you evangelize more? I mean, let's be candid. I mean, let's have like, honest, real talk for a moment. Why don't we evangelize more? Almost always, it usually comes down to some form or fashion of, I don't know what to say and I'm afraid I'm gonna say the wrong thing and look stupid. Or, I'm afraid that I'm just gonna upset them and it's not gonna do, excuse me, it's not gonna do any good. It's not gonna do any good, it's just gonna make them angry. And you're like, but, but you see at that point, in both of those things, you're letting the other person dictate the entire terms of your life. You're not gonna obey the Lord because you're afraid that it's not gonna do any good and you might make them angry. You're not gonna obey the Lord because you're afraid that you might look foolish, look, look dumb. Well, okay. This is one of those things we just, we don't like to admit, do we? That we're so afraid in so many areas of our lives, and it's interesting, the solution <clears throat> is a theological battle in between our ears to have that constant conversation to remind us the Lord is in charge. He's been in charge in the past. He's in charge in the present. He'll be in charge into the future. And I am called to live in that freedom that the Lord loves you and cares for you. This is one of the great benefits of how our order of worship is structured. How does every worship service in our uh, denomination supposed to end? How's every worship service in this, this actual church proper end? It ends with a benediction. And a benediction is a two-part thing. It is a prayer, but it's a, not just a prayer, but it's also a declaration. It's kind of both at the same time. It is a, a prayer issued by the minister asking the Lord to bless his people with the blessings that he's already promised, and in doing so, it's a pronouncement of those blessings. This isn't uh, uh, the same kind of way you pray for your food, right? When you say, Lord, please bless the food, thank you that we get to have, or something like that. This is actually a declarative statement that God would care for his people. And it's intriguing that our worship services end with a declaration that God loves you and is working in your life, caring for you and providing for you. In light of that, go live as people without fear. You don't have to be afraid of your neighbors. You don't have to be afraid of what people think. You don't have to be afraid at all because the Lord loves you and he's taking care of you. Let's pray. Lord, would you please forgive us for our fear? It's sin, and we're so often afraid of the wrong things. Instead, Lord, would you give us the joy that comes from believing you? Help us in our lack of faith. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.